I mean, 100%. That's why it's that's why it's the greatest game. You know what I mean? Because teams teams that aren't supposed to win win sometimes, win a lot of times, and that's why it's so exciting. I mean, I know in my career, you know, first of all, well, even not the Super Bowl, the whole season is like a 16 week drama. You know what I mean? Every single week matters so much. Um, unless you get knocked out after three months, but that's rare. You know, the majority of teams are in it to the last month and every single one play, a football can bounce one way. Hey friends, welcome to this week's episode of the Human Enhancement Podcast. I'd really had the pleasure of speaking with Connor Barwin this afternoon. He's a top outside linebacker who's played for the Texans, Eagles, and Rams and a multiple-time Defensive Player of the Month. This was a really fun conversation for me because we not only touch upon the sports science and the strength and conditioning of being a top NFL player, but also the cultural aspects of what it's like to be a community pillar. And not only is he representing the team, but he's also a founder of a nonprofit called Make the World Better, where they're building out parks and centers for his community. So this is a really fun one. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Can't wait for you to listen. Awesome to have Connor Barwin on the program with, here with us today. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Of course. Excited to talk to you. So one of the biggest questions that I've always had with people teeing up for matches or competition or going on the battlefield is, what is it like in the locker room? 30 minutes, five minutes, you're about to run onto the field. Talk me yeah. through the energy, the vibe. Are you introverted? Are you thinking about what you want to execute on the field? Is everyone hyping themselves up? What is it like for you? You know, they're, they're usually... From year to year, team to team, there can be different kind of vibes, so to speak, of what a locker room looks like exactly, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes before we run out of the tunnel. Overall, my experience, you know, it's usually most people kind of getting into their own mental space. Usually, like, either they're sitting at their locker they're listening to headphones. They might be reading over notes. They might be stretching. But generally speaking, most people are kind of going through the game in their mind, getting really focused personally on what they have to do. And then kind of, I think in football, it's such so many guys in the locker room. One thing is you get really focused, but then you start to feed off of the energy of the room and the focus. And as it builds and builds and builds, and then... You know, as you count out from the 30 minutes until the just a few minutes before you run out, the focus is there, but the focus kind of drives this intensity or, or, or drives this emotion where by the you know the last couple of minutes before you run out, it's now things are getting loud, guys are getting worked up, you know, those kind of things. But 30 minutes out, it's really, you really see a, a hyper-focused kind of moment in the locker room. Okay, so... It's not a lot of chit chat. I guess you like give a nod to some of your teammates, and it's just like everyone's sort of meditating, yeah, or yeah, visualizing. Yeah, exactly. Everyone's kind of in their own space. Yeah. But like back in the day, the locker room used to be pretty quiet, like no sound, super focused. But now, just the way things have changed, the way kids are, you know, now there's usually music blaring in the locker room. 
and it's either you listening to the music that's in the locker room or you're wearing headphones. And I would say more than half of the locker room is wearing their own headphones and the other 20 or 30% are just listening to the music that's being blared yeah. in the locker room. But it is interesting because 10 years ago, even you know, five, six years ago, locker rooms for the most part were usually pretty quiet places leading up to you know a game. And that's changed in the last couple of years with people with their portable speakers. And now there's like the massive speakers. Yeah. Instead of everybody having like their portable speaker in the locker room, they've just decided to have one big speaker. And if you don't like that music, you put on your headphones. So <laughs> that's like a weird detail that's changed in the last 10 years. Yeah, I think that's an interesting opening jumping off point. I mean, NFL careers aren't that long. I mean, you're a 10, this will be your 11th season coming into 2018, 2019. Uh, it'll be my 10th year. 10th yep. year. I mean, that's, that's a, you're a veteran of the, of the sport. I mean, most careers, what, what's the average career? Like a couple years? Well, the, the average career is about three and a half, four years. Yeah. You know, I take a lot of, pro- I mean, I, I, I'm going to the 10. I'm really proud of that. But especially at my position, being an outside linebacker, being a pass rusher, there's guys that make it to 10. I mean, some make it over 10, but it's not many. You know, yeah. there's not many guys because it's such a very explosive, powerful position that, you know, a lot of guys burn out after a couple of years, even if they're good enough at the beginning. Yeah. So uh, I'm proud I've been doing it. And I've been really lucky to be able to do it this long. Yeah. What do you credit that resilience towards? As we all know, I mean, essentially football is modern gladiator. I mean, you're taking physical damage day in, day out. Do you credit your resilience towards good genetics? You, you, you make sure to treat your body right, recovery, some luck, technique? Yeah, I, th- I think it's, all of the, think all of the it's above. Of, yeah, really all of the above. I think, obviously, in football, you got to be lucky. Any single play, some serious injury can occur. In my career, I've really only had one, and that put me out my second year for the whole season, just a freak you know, injury where I completely dislocated my ankle and broke my foot. I mean, it was over, you know, just one play Mm. that really looking back on my career, it's made me realize how lucky I I am because that play could happen like five or six times in any football game. Surprisingly, it doesn't. Thank God. And it happened to me once when I was young, but I think my genetics play a big role. Um, Obviously, I have the bone structure and the frame that I have to kind of carry my weight. And then Again, I've had a bunch of smart coaches and smart trainers that have taught me how to train properly, how to recover, how to not overtrain, but how not to undertrain, um, which is a really, you know, is a fine line. And then I haven't been perfect, but I try to do it as well as I can. And then, you know, you mentioned technique. It's just playing the game smart as well, which it makes a big impact. Yeah. So how has the game changed since your rookie season till now? Obviously, there's a cosmetic aspect of, I guess, the speakers. Yeah. How smart has the game become? I mean, I think we've been talking to folks in Major League Baseball or special operators in the military. There's the uptick in sensors, biometric marker sensors, biometric trackers, step trackers, HRV. Yeah. Is that something that's in the locker room now? Is that something that you personally tinker with are you a data guy are you more of a instinctual animal guy like hey you know i feel like my body's good today i'm gonna go out hard i feel a little beat up i'm gonna dial back yeah that's that's a great question it's really interesting just when i've been in the league because when i first got in 2009 which wasn't long ago but none of what you just mentioned was in the nfl surprisingly 
I think a lot of that kind of that tracking was in the NBA first, you know, wasn't around in the NFL. For for football fans, they will know when Chip Kelly became the head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles is when I signed with the Eagles from Houston, he brought in the first kind of sports science director. Hmm. And we had so much data and everything was getting analyzed. And he was taking it from what they did at Oregon. I mean, again, I think colleges were doing it before the NFL. And now in the six years since 2013, when Chip was first in Philly, you know, everyone's doing it now. Everyone's tracking, everyone's doing HRV. You know, in the NFL, we always filmed everything. Every practice, every game, every rep you ever did was always filmed. And you, you watch the film. But none of this kind of data, heart rate, biometric stuff. And even in the beginning, the first couple of years, when Chip and his staff were tracking everything, I'm not sure if they knew exactly what it all meant, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of sports science directors around the world are still gathering what all of this data really means. To your point earlier, I mean, obviously, you want to make sure you can undulate your training. And that's important. And data helps you do that. But I think we're really just on the edge of it. I think now in the last couple of years, they're getting better and better looking at it and making smart decisions with it. But it hasn't been in the NFL long. And I think it's just the beginning. Yeah. Anything in particular that has been good for you? I mean, like what out of that noise is actually legit in your eyes? Well, for a short time, they had one of these, I started to talk a lot with one of our sports science directors in Philly uh, in, in the summer when we were having OTA training. And obviously they can log like your load, like how far you've gone, how many miles you've ran. But for a football player, they used to be able to log like your kind of bursts, how many bursts you were having, how explosive you were being. And I remember we had, you know, like 10 summer practices. You can't really do this during the season because you have games. But I remember trying to really look at that data and talking to the coach, you know, every week and trying to just be a little bit faster every single day and see if my data was true. I think it was really helpful to be able to look at that because in your mind, because it's, it's a little more honest than what you think you're doing. And so it was a way for me to focus on trying to like be a little bit more explosive or a little bit faster and it was a marker that I could look at and say, I did it or I didn't do it, yeah. which I thought was useful. Um, and then I think some of the stuff that they now have integrated in, in weight rooms where, you know, again, in football, which is an explosive sport. So you always look, you know, obviously you can measure how much weight you put on a bar. But I think there's a lot of carryover to how fast you can move a bar. And now with a lot of the, the technology they have in, in NFL weight rooms, you can track how fast you're moving that bar. And I think that is just as important nowadays or uh, with certain athletes uh, as much as how much you put on the bar. Yeah. Um, so I think those are two areas that it's helpful. And then obviously the recovery is always really important just to measure your loads consistently throughout the year. Yeah. No, it's an interesting point, especially around, especially in Silicon Valley or engineering, if you don't measure, you can't improve it. Like you don't, and that sounds like if you care about your power output, right? These are burst yeah. load, not, it's basically the power is the speed times load. 
yeah. as opposed to just load itself, right? So it sounds like, you know, instead of repping, you know, the bench press or the squat, you're like doing that with speed and trying to measure how much speed you're actually doing that just as opposed to just how many plates are on the bar. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, I'm sure you have all kinds of different athletes that are listening to this podcast, but explosiveness is, that's the most important in, yeah. in football, how powerful how explosive you are. And so that's why it's so important for us to be able to look at that data and have a marker and know whether we're improving in that area or not. Yeah. So you mentioned Chip Kelly, and that actually brings up an audience question from the Freeman 419 on Reddit. He actually asks, how different was it playing for Chip Kelly Eagles versus the Doug Peterson Eagles? They were a lot different. They were a lot different. Um, Chip and... Doug, I, I enjoyed playing for both of them because I think, you know, I learned from both of them. I learned there's definitely a lot of different ways to do things. But what I think, you know, Chip doesn't get a lot of credit, but he really started this whole sports science movement in Philly. And I would say he made some mistakes because he was the first to do it. And he really kind of overdid it. And in Doug's timing, and the way a lot of this sports science has gone, it, it, the way it's done now in the NFL, when Chip got there, it was like such an important, such a new thing. It was everywhere. We talked about it a lot. When Doug got there, and this is the way a lot of other teams, I think, do it now, is you have your trainers, your athletic trainers, you have your strength coaches, and then you have your sports science coaches. And really, players still, we interface more with the athletic trainers and the strength coaches and the sports science people are more in the background and they're giving information when it's necessary. So they're giving all the data to their coaches and then the coaches can make smart decisions. If a player wants that data, then he can go see them. But if he doesn't want it, it's not, he's not talked about all the time. He is still completely focused on football and what his job is. And, and that's it. I mean, I think, the big difference was when Chip was there, there was, we were just talking about sports science all the time. Um, and again, his whole staff, everyone was learning about it. When Doug got there, sports science was still there, but it was kind of in the backdrop. And all that data was still being processed and still being used, but players weren't talking about it all the time. We were just talking about football, and the coaches were looking at the data, and they were, again, making decisions with what that data said. So that's just the difference between them right. and the kind of sports science world. I mean, all the other football stuff, you know, they were a lot different as well. But they're both really smart offensive coaches. You know, Chip was a was great kind of orator to the whole team. Doug was great at kind of the one-on-one -on -one inter interpersonal conversations with guys. And so they were different in that way. Right. It sounds like people have different styles and some people gravitate towards one or the other and it's kind of a one-on-one -on -one Yeah, exactly, thing. exactly. And, you know, Doug's style just won them a Super Bowl. So, <laughs> so his, his style works pretty good. Yeah, I mean, um, end of the day results, and, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And Chip, Chip did, had a lot of success early on and he had a ton of success in college and I'm sure he's at, he's at UCLA now he's going to have a ton of success there. Very cool. So how important is the nutritionist or the nutrition aspect of, you mentioned the trainer, the strength, the S&C staff, strength and conditioning, the sports science. I mean, when I've been talking to folks, 
it sounds like one of the biggest challenges is having the guys or the athletes eat properly. When you're in yeah. the weight room, when you're in the practice room, like people can coach you, but when you're out eating or partying or whatever you're doing in your own life, it's hard. You know, the nutritionist isn't like they're slapping out big donuts from your hand. Yeah. I'm curious to hear from your perspective, uh, how does the nutrition come into play? How does it integrate? Has it been well, incorporated well? Well, I think the nutrition, into, the yeah. nutrition, it wasn't so big in the NFL when I first got in the league because, first of all, guys can get away with not eating that healthy in the NFL. And nutrition is really complicated in the NFL because you have guys that are 160 pounds and then you have guys that are 360 pounds. Yeah. So it's not like you're doing the nutrition for a cycling team where they all or a swimming team where they all are about a similar size build. They need the right amount of carbohydrates and this and that. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's a challenge with a football team because the variety of what people eat and how much they need. And again, there's during the season, there's 60 some guys in the team. Right. So that's a challenge. But. With that being said, the other part is in football, you just have freaks. There's plenty of guys that can eat and drink whatever they want. I mean, they're just incredible athletes. Yeah. And so they can just get away with not having a great diet. But at the same time, as sports science has become more prevalent in the NFL, the nutritionists and, and people talking about their diet has become much more prevalent. I mean, that's just because I think... It wasn't that important across the board five, six, ten years ago. But as instead of five percent of the team having a really strict diet, now there's forty percent. Then it just pulls the rest of the guys up because now it's it's harder to stick around and be at your peak when the other thirty, forty guys are starting to take care of themselves at a different level than they used to. And so that's why it's becoming more and more important because more guys are doing it and you can't get away with what you used to yeah. 10 years ago. What are you doing personally? Are you experimenting? Are you a meat and potato guy? You constantly no, tweaking? I, what, what's, your, uh, what's your style? Yeah, so my style, not to get too into it, but you know, I grew up eating relatively healthy, which I was lucky. I mean, that's a lot of people don't grow up eating uh, that healthy nowadays. But my style has always been a very balanced diet. I know I'm always trying to eat more veggies than I ever do because that should always be the goal, more, more, more veggies. Yeah. But I eat a good amount and I try to eat high quality meat whenever I can. I eat a ton of fruit, maybe even almost now I'm realizing maybe more fruit than I necessarily need to. And then, you know, I eat carbs, but I don't eat the bad carbs that I used to as I've gotten older. Just because I notice the more veggies and high quality meat and fruits that I eat, my body physically feels better. So really my diet, I guess, sways toward giving me enough calories, but also at the same time, not eating anything that will cause inflammation at my age. Mm -hmm. So, and then of course, I mean, I'm eating protein shakes all day. I mean, one thing that I always do is I always do smoothies. I do two or three smoothies a day that are fruit, veggies, uh, and protein. And that's key for me in between my meals. Yeah. I mean, how many calories are you taking down a day? I don't know. I bet when I'm really training hard, it's probably between 10 to 15,000. 
Yeah. Um, but I've never been, you know, like a calorie counting guy. Right. Um, but <laughs> I just know I eat a lot of food. That's a lot. That's a lot yeah. of food. That just reminds me of that one infographic that was pretty big when Michael Phelps was big and yeah. he's eating like 12,000 calories a day or something. And that's like four pizzas and pasta this yeah so i'm probably i'm probably more on like ten thousand, <laughs> probably between like eight to ten thousand then because i remember that diet too yeah and if that was 10 to 12 i'm probably a little bit less than that but when we're you know when we're training in training camp and when i'm really like right now i'm working out pretty i'm working out four days a week about four or five hours a day i mean you have to eat that much yeah. and especially when you you know when you eat healthy it's like you're always hungry yeah you know what i mean your body when you're training hard and eating healthy at least me, I'm always hungry, uh, which just means you eat all day long. Yeah. But also, it's like a nice feeling of that you you feel alive. You, you feel like you're just turning through like stored energy. Yeah. Well, you're just, exactly right. You're, just, you're exactly right. It's like a machine that just keeps going. Hope you're enjoying this episode so far. We'll get right back to it in just a moment. But first, I'd like to share something not only important to me, but also important for this program. We've been seeing tremendous growth of the show and the amount of feedback sent to podcastathuman.com, the reviews on iTunes, even running into friends, listeners as I grab coffee in the morning, it's been really heartwarming to see the impact of our show. My ask is simple. Let's all make the human podcast even better. The first step towards this goal starts with you. By spending a few minutes taking a short survey linked in the show notes, you'll help us understand what we can do to improve the show. By taking a survey, you'll be entered into a special giveaway of Human Ketone. The winner will be picked exactly one week from the date this episode airs. So act quick and don't forget. Again, the survey can be found in the show notes, or you can type go.hvmn.com slash podcast survey. That's go.hvmn.com slash podcast survey. Now back to the show. I want to shift gears a little bit here. I know that you've been spending a lot of time with Make the World Better. Can you tell us the story and the mission behind that? And it also just sort of segues into another audience question from Squid Twister. He asked, how does the NFL support extra athletic endeavors, I guess, extracurricular endeavors? Do they encourage it? Could they do a better job encouraging that kind of environment? I think the NFL does a great job kind of helping and encouraging. And in my experience, if guys want to get involved in the community, the NFL does a great job giving them opportunities to do that. Yeah. From a financial standpoint, again, not to get in the weeds too much, but According to the collective bargaining agreement, the NFL and their teams cannot really sponsor events if a player has a foundation Mm. because it can get tricky in contracts. So if I have a contract where the Rams owe me a million dollars, but then they're going to give Make the World Better 250000 suddenly now in contracts right. how much you're giving a player's foundation becomes part of the contract part of the income. so yeah, 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 so yeah. they can't so it, so they don't do that which is understandable but they really do help guys get involved in the communities that they want to get involved at least in the teams that I've played for yeah. which is the Texans the Eagles and the Rams for me I started to make the world better in 2013 when I got to Philadelphia I signed a bigger contract So I wanted to make a commitment to the community that I was going to be playing in. And when I grew up, my dad was a city manager. So I was well aware of how important public spaces were and how they could help and transform neighborhoods. And then growing up, obviously, sports played a big part of my life. So I wanted to intertwine 
or interconnect both of those. And we decided to start to revitalize neighborhood parks. I found our first project just riding my bicycle to the Eagles facility in South Philly. And now we're on our third project, our third playground rebuild. And what I'm really proud of and what I've learned through the last five years is we do these 12 to 18-month playground revitalization projects. But what we really do is through that process, the playground is just kind of the vessel. And through that process, we're able to connect people in those neighborhoods and create stewardship, create leaders in that neighborhood. And that's what, at the end, makes transforms a neighborhood and really makes a park a special place. So you not only have a brand new playground with safe equipment that all kids deserve, but you've also connected the people in the neighborhood and brought the whole neighborhood together. And and that's what we're uh, going to continue to try to do. Yeah, it's such important work, just like seeding the community. It just seems so timely because everyone's just like talking online. We're talking online now, but it sounds like you just need to have places to just bring people physically together. Exactly. Um, it's it's so yeah. important right now. And we've built community gardens next to our playgrounds. And you've watched how gardens just bring neighbors together. You know, like people don't get together anymore. Right. Or we're really proud to build playgrounds that have something for everyone in the neighborhood. We build basketball courts and football fields, but we also build playgrounds for little kids and older kids. We put a big walking path in one of our last playgrounds with the idea that if you're an older adult, you know, you're not going to be playing pickup basketball or football. But if your son or daughter's playing and you want to get some exercise, we put a walking path so you can walk on this path and get your exercise while you watch your kids play. So we try to do small interventions like that. But as you said, it's incredible the way these public spaces can bring people together and get people just talking and, and communicating. Is there a goal that you want to do 10, 15, 100, 1,000 public spaces? How do you, how do you what do you measure? Yeah, the, or do you yeah, measure? We, we're not measuring right now. I mean, the goal at first was one park a year, but you know we've done three in five years. We've realized that we could go in and do the construction and get out and do it in less than a year. But the magic is the commitment you put in to that community engagement for 12, 18 months. Yeah. I mean, that's where the difference is. And we're trying to figure out ways we can do it faster. But, you know, it's a fine line. Yeah. And the idea is to continue to do more playgrounds in the neighborhoods in Philadelphia. And then hopefully we might do one in Detroit where I grew up. And hopefully, you know, all across the country eventually. Yeah, it's, it's very inspiring and, and notable and, and noteworthy. And that actually relates to uh, another audience question. Mordechi actually writes, Barwin's an interesting guy. He becomes part of the community much more than some of the just passing through professional athletes. And I know you touched a bit up about your father as a city manager, but what factors push you over? Like, why are you doing this? Well, I think there's the first thing I like to say is I've been fortunate. You know, in the NFL, a lot of guys, you know, we talked about it earlier, a lot of guys don't play for very long. Yeah. But if, if some guys do play for a long time, a lot of time they're bouncing from one team to another every, every uh, year. They don't know if they're going to make it. They might make a team that they didn't think they were going to make, all this kind of stuff. Right. So it's hard for NFL guys to really get committed to the community they play in. And that's where sometimes fans might 
see guys as just passing through, which is, you know, it's, it's not, it's not their, it's not their fault, really. For me, I played four years in Houston, four years in Philly, and now I'm at the end of my career and I'm kind of bouncing around a little bit. But those two cities that I got to play four years in allowed me to really get to know the city that I was playing in. And I made a strategic decision, I guess, to live year round where I played. And I thought that was important. You know, I was a fan at one time and and still am, but I understand the importance of that connection between a player and the fan in the city and how special that can be. And I've always tried to embrace that in my career. Yeah, I think that's the right way to look at it. I mean, it sounds like you were lucky or talented to have that luxury, right? Because I can imagine if you're, yeah, year to year, it's like, uh, do I want to like really spend emotional energy to like get to know this community? Well, uh, yeah, and that's what happens. That's why you'll see a a lot of NFL players, as soon as the season's over, they jet back to where their hometown was or where their college was. I mean, that's pretty standard across yeah. the league because of what we just talked about. Yeah. So Jerry95 actually asked someone to, another related question here. So when you do actually move to a new team, do you care about the division rivalries? Do you still care when you move on to the next team? I mean, how much of the history, culture do you absorb in as you transition? You care about it, but you still have to remove yourself a little bit because, you know, it is your job. Yeah, You can't help but feel an emotion when you go play against the team you you used to play for. So right. I can always remember the times we played the Texans while yeah. I was with the Eagles. I've always said, and I'll say this, I think the NFC East, which is the, the Eagles, the Giants, the Cowboys, and the Redskins, is the best division in football. And I don't mean it's the most talented division in football every year, but I think it's the most competitive and it's the most historic division in football. I know my friend Chris Long, who signed from the Patriots to the Eagles last year, he played for the St. Louis Rams before they were in L.A., uh, which was a smaller market. And really, that's a baseball town. I told him, I said, you're going to love playing for the Eagles. I mean, you're going to love playing the NFC East because you're talking about a team that's been in a city for you know almost a hundred years in all four cities, I mean it's you know the type of fans they have in that division is really unlike any other. And you're yeah. going to be on Sunday night football every week. You're going to be on Monday night football because those those teams are the biggest show in the league. Right. So um, I don't know if that answers this question, but you know if I if they go play for the Giants or the Cowboys or the Redskins, if they pay me the right amount of money, I would do it. <laughs> but <laughs> but. You know, I've got a lot of love for <laughs> my time I played with the Eagles. Yeah. Now, I imagine if you're, I guess, played college football in a huge college town, right? If you're like at Alabama versus like, I went to Stanford, right? And Stanford's football team had a kind of a rocky history where, and you, you might say, you know, fair weather fans where people don't really care when the team sucks and like when it's hot, it's like pretty hot. But I, I can imagine that when you join a team that has such a historic, tie with the community and like really the identity of, uh, of a community it's an added i guess motivation beyond like the professionalism just doing your best as like a professional player yeah it, there's that connection you know i would say it was really different for me this is no commentary on the fans in la or in philly really but you know i went from philly for four years where the fans are crazy yeah um for obvious reasons i mean it's the Eagles have been in Philly for, I don't know, 80, 90 years. And then I went to LA, which it was their second season 
in LA yeah. uh, after being in St. Louis for 15 or 20 years. And, you know, those first couple of games we played at the Coliseum, which again, the Rams don't even have their own stadium yet. Yeah. It was, it was strange, you know, cause I was used to another level of home games and, you know, the Rams didn't really, they didn't get there until we got to that end of the season in the playoffs. We played a playoff game. We played the Falcons at the, at the Coliseum. I was like, Oh shit. All right. This is, this is NFL football. This yeah. is what, you know, home field advantage is supposed to be like. And I expect the Rams leading into next year, they'll pick up right where they left off yeah. again, you know, in that Falcons playoff loss. Yeah. But it was really interesting for me to compare those two cities and their fans. Yeah. So it was a pretty storied career. Mooney spot 18 asks, what do you consider your biggest accomplishment since you joined the league? Well, I led the NFC in sacks in 2000, I don't know, 14 or 15 with 14 and a half. So uh, there's not many guys that have ever done that. So I'm yeah. pretty proud of that. But maybe my, when, I, when I'm just athletic or football wise, what I'm most proud of is I played in a hundred and some consecutive games uh, without missing a start, which I'm really proud of. And I had a freak injury last year against the Saints where I've cracked a bone in my arm. So I had to miss two games, but I've played in, I didn't miss a game for six consecutive seasons with having five or six playoff games. And then last year, I think I played in like 10 or 12 and then broke my arms. It was like a hundred and some consecutive starts for a defensive linebacker or defensive player. It was pretty good. And I'm pretty proud of, I was pretty, my wife, knows I was pretty pissed last year when I broke my arm and yeah. uh, the streak died. But yeah, those are probably two of the things that I'm most proud of. Obviously, I, I was really proud in Houston. You know, I was part of that team that led Houston to their first ever playoff game yeah. and their first ever playoff win, which was pretty amazing to be a part of that too. Cool. And relating to the role of defense, Nomad Fire actually asks, how was it playing with some of the best defensive tackles? Yeah, I played with a couple good ones. Yeah. Uh, you know, I played with J.J. Watt, of course, Defensive Player of the Year twice, who is incredibly talented, incredibly smart. Um, and then last year, I got to play with Defensive Player of the Year and Aaron Donald, who, again, unbelievably talented, explosive, uh, unselfish, just works his tail off all the time. It was an honor to play with those guys. Learned a lot from them, and... And then I played with another guy, Antonio Smith, who won a Super Bowl in Denver a couple of years ago, who is one of the most talented defensive tackles I've ever been around. So I've been fortunate to play with some good guys. Yeah. I'm actually curious to hear about, this is actually, I think, an audience question here. I'm not spotting it here. Oh, Ben, ben Tumba. I mean, I think part of, it sounds like your experience here is that you've had such resilience and longevity to be able to play 107 games in, in a row, which is hard because like you're going to battle every single time you're in a game plus all the practices what do you think about the safety of football i mean i think there's been i mean i'm sure you've been following some of the news around like the tbi cte issues with so much you know head trauma do you see anything with your own health i mean are you worried about that is this sort of just part of your the risks that you take as a as your career what do you think about the whole safety yeah health? I, I think i think it's it's all First, first of all, I totally know it's real and yeah. it's a concern. It's something you know I I think about. Um, I don't I, you know I don't think about it all the time. I think I'm 
taking care of my body and trying to do everything I can for my overall health and my brain health. I think I understand the risk and that's why I want to keep playing. But I also think the NFL has gotten safer since I've been in the league. I can remember when Roger Goodell first made some of the rule changes when I first got in the league and guys were all pissed about it and coaches were mad about it. And, you know, it, it took a couple of years, but not only guys are getting fined, but we're getting 15 yard penalties for some of these, I guess, too violent of hits. Um, it's, it, you don't see them as much. Uh, and I know you still see them, but you don't see them as much as you used to. And most importantly, I'm on the inside and I know that coaches and personnel are not at all encouraging them like maybe they did 10, 20 years ago. And so I think that means even at the younger level, high school, grade school coaches are for sure, hopefully not encouraging those type of hits anymore. And people are going to learn to play um, football with, with keeping their head out of it as much as possible. Obviously there's times when you can't help it and that's, that's going to happen, but I think it has improved and I think there's more awareness around it, which is good. And also you guys are, you know, in the technology world, I'm praying and hoping that some new technology comes through in the next five or 10 years. Right. Yeah, I do think with everything I just said, I think that is still necessary. I think they need a better concussion test. I believe they need to create some tests that's like an x-ray where you scan your brain and you look at the test and you know what kind of damage is happening. Because right now it's so kind of subjective yeah. on how people are feeling right. uh, and how they how they're they tested before. I mean, I think that's challenging right now. So, you know, I hope at some point in the next few years, somebody comes through with a really good test where you can just look at the data and then make an educated decision I mean, about that's actually, whether you should play or not play. That's actually been one of the hardest challenges with both the military and with sport. I mean, you don't have a protein that is a marker for a TBI or concussion that you can just like finger stick, right? Like you can detect HIV or cancer through some metabolite. It just seems to be a lot more complicated because the brain is so much more complicated. And there's different resiliencies for, you know, your brain versus my brain, right? It just it's not as consistent as like, okay, you have high cholesterol or or like high blood sugar. That's like a lot easier of a biomarker to measure. That's something that we are just excited about, just given the data around ketogenic diets, where when the brain takes a TBI, oftentimes so what happens is catecholamines are released and that inhibits glucose uptake. So your brain isn't as good as taking an, an energy from sugar. So if you can use something like exogenous ketones or a ketogenic diet, can you rescue some of that brain energy deficit? And that's been some of where our research is looking at. And that's where some of the baseline research with ketogenic diets has been promising with some of the early animal studies, right? So you can't really do a randomized controlled trial on a human being because you can't like bash someone in the head and then give them like the, you know, the intervention, not the intervention, but with, uh, with rat models, thanks for the sacrifice of these mice, but you can sort of, there's been studies on a ketogenic diet, the brain contusion and the energy deficit of mouse brain on a ketogenic diet versus on a normal diet. There's actually a significant difference. So there's some early work there into looking at the nutrition or the physiology of rescuing some of the downsides of a TBI. Yeah. And see, and that's hopefully all of this research continues to, to move, move us forward. 
And on another positive note, I think you're talking about food and a ketogenic diet, but I think, you know, recently, last couple of years, people are just generally realizing that food, obviously, and just sleep, there are things that are talked about now that yeah. were never talked about five, six years ago. At yeah. least I don't remember being talked about. And people are talking about, you got to get sleep to help your brain recover. You yeah. got to eat these proper foods because they're good for your brain. And so I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, if I do those things and more of my peers do those things, we'll be in better shape in yeah. 30, 40 years from now. Yeah. I mean, curious to get your thoughts, like how the sport will evolve. I, I wouldn't say I have a lot of experience with taking head trauma, but I did a friendly amateur boxing fight with a, with a good friend, three round fight. And I remember just sparring and training for that. I mean, if you take some shots to the head, you get a little bit stunned. And I remember, you know, a little bit slower with the words, you know, after a particular hard training day. I mean, it sounds like the rule changes are going to be helpful, hopefully better helmets and, and all of that. But I'm sure you've seen some of the devil's advocate, the really, really extreme people are like, football is not going to be a sport in the next 50 years because it's so dangerous for the brain. That might be extreme. That might be overly cautious. Obviously, this is your career. I mean, yeah. what, what do you say to those critics where it's like, hey, like this is not good for a 13-year-old kid? Well, I think the hard part is that for some kids, it's really bad. And you touched upon it earlier and said one of the challenges in a lot of the research is the brain is so complicated and that everybody's brain kind of has different resilience. I mean, I've had one concussion for sure, no doubt about it in my career. And I had it my sophomore year in college and I was knocked out for like 10 minutes, clear concussion. Thank God the doctors kept me out for like two weeks, never had any symptoms. I've taken huge hits in football. You know, I dove and hit my head on like frozen turf in football games. I've been all right. Yeah. Uh, knock on wood, I've been good. And I've played with plenty of guys, though, that I've seen taken worse hits than I've ever taken, and they've been fine. And then I've seen guys that have just kind of got hit at a weird angle, or I don't know what happened, uh, and they had a concussion. Yeah. Or I've seen guys, you know, again, take monster hits and have concussions and have like really scary symptoms where they can't see, they can't look at light. They've been messed up for like weeks at a time. So there's so many variances that it's really hard to tell. And that's why I don't think football is going anywhere. I do think a little bit of the issue is with youth playing football. I I encourage kids not to play football when they're young anyways, because you're not really developing any real football skill when you're 14 years or younger. If you wanted to be developing endurance or athleticism or hand-eye coordination, you're better off playing a lot of other sports. I mean, track, basketball, soccer, those are all going to help you be a better athlete, which will later make you a better football player. But again, to the concussion thing, this is why I'm really hopeful. And I've, I've said this before that they need like a, like a test yeah. that looks at a kid's brain. It's almost you know, when you go to school every year and you do your physical, at least that's what they did when I was growing up, you had to do a physical before every school year. Right. And you do your physical and in a dream situation, you get your brain scanned and your mom or dad gets a paper that says, this is, this is the health of your brain. Yeah. And then leading into that school year, every parent can make a educated guess whether they're going to let their kid play contact sports. And if say your son or daughter has like a mark that shows uh, something might still be recovering, then 
they're done for the whole year. It's just, you're not playing football. You're not playing soccer. We're going to not do any physical contact sports for a year. And then next year you get the same test and you make an educated decision. So I'm hopeful that something like that will come. And then I think football for sure isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah. It's like one of the most American things, right? Like you got baseball, you got football, you got your hot well, dogs. It's, 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 you, could argue <laughs> it is, you could argue right now it's the most American thing. Yeah. I mean, I think it's changing, but Super Bowl Sunday is one of the last single unifiers in this whole country. Yeah. You know, can you think of anything more where everyone kind of tunes in the whole country? I mean, the Super yeah. Bowl is kind of at the top there. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I'm biased, but it's it's the greatest sport. I mean, it's such a team sport. You've got people from every shape and size from every walk of life. And I think that's what attracts such a diverse audience and really pulls everyone. And then it's a TV sport. It's exciting to watch on TV. Yeah. It's easy to watch on TV. And, and uh, that's why it does so good in America. Yeah. What do you think of the controversy around taking the knee of the anthem? I know that's been a huge political firestorm in in recent months do you have a strong opinion there Um, i'm really proud of all my peers that have stood up for what they believe in i think it's unfortunate you know when you when you decide to protest the idea is to make people uncomfortable yeah and that's why they protested the way they did and they've clearly made a lot of people uncomfortable yeah i mean they've raised a lot of awareness the downside is because of the way they've chosen to protest it's been easy for people to kind of change the narrative, which has been unfortunate. But I think I can only speak for my peers who I know personally. And when I got in the league, the conversations that were happening in the locker room about how we could help and support people in our neighborhoods and our communities is way different the last couple of years than it was 10 years ago when I got in the league. And I think If anything, that's why I'm happy with what guys have decided to do, because it's made people not only talk the talk, but walk the walk. And there's a different level of conversation happening now in in locker rooms that didn't happen prior. And there's a lot of stories I know about guys doing things in their communities that a lot of people don't know about. But they're doing it because all of this made them more aware of what they could be doing or what they should be doing. And I think that's a really good thing. Yeah, no, I think that's a really refreshing point of view there. I mean, I think for me, the most American thing is to protest in however way you see fit, right? I mean, the First Amendment, freedom of speech, it seems uh, the critics almost like wrap themselves in the flag to like deny someone the right to protest and give an opinion of what they see fit. And even the folks that, you know, my friends in the military or veterans, I think in general, like they've fought and, and bled for the country to allow Americans people in general to have a right to express their opinion so yeah hopefully you know we can slowly educate and and let people actually not just be an athlete or a professional player is not just like a propaganda item like these are all human beings with their own political perspectives why why silence them is kind of the way i think about it yeah exactly and i hope we continue to guys get involved and continue to do things in their communities and I hope it doesn't turn into this big polarizing political issue because that's not what anybody wants, I don't think. Yeah. And so, you know, hopefully people are become more aware with what's happening. Hopefully football continue to be the greatest game and that I've ever played and continue to bring Americans together. Yeah. I think one of the good attributes of 
the Super Bowl is that it's just like it's like the one game, right? Where like NBA Finals, right? There's like over four games. If you actually look at some of the statistics, because it's based on you know sudden death essentially, as opposed to series, there's more element of chance or luck than you know having repeatable games. I mean, I think that probably adds to the drama and the intensity of an individual play, an individual game. I mean, that, uh, I mean, one hundred percent, right? I mean, one hundred percent. That's yeah. why it's that's why it's the greatest game. You know what I mean? Because teams <laughs> teams that aren't supposed to win win sometimes. Yeah, win a lot of times, and that's why it's so exciting. Now, you know, in my career, you know, first of all, well, even not the Super Bowl, the whole season is like a sixteen week drama. Yeah. You know what I mean? Every single week matters so much unless you get knocked out after three months, but that's rare. You yeah. know, the majority of teams are in it to the last month. Every single one play, a football can bounce one way. There's there's two or three plays that happened in our Rams Falcons playoff game that hadn't happened all season and they go the other way. Right. We win and we move on. The Eagles, my boys just won a Super Bowl and I'm yeah. happy as hell for them. But if one of the best receivers in the league doesn't drop the ball in the end zone at the end of the game, <laughs> yeah, the Eagles lose the playoff game uh, to the Falcons. But Julio Jones just, you know, he had it and then he dropped. And so then the Eagles move on. Then the Eagles beat the Vikings. Then yeah. they win the Super Bowl. But like, yeah, I mean, that's what makes football so intriguing and fun to watch because those things happen and it's hard to predict what's going to happen. Are there a few plays in your mind that went your way? that you think about like, damn, I'm freaking lucky. Do you have some of those moments? Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, you remember the ones that don't go okay. your way because, <laughs> you know, that's unfortunately how it works. Yeah. What's the saying go? The uh, the joy of victory or the agony of defeat. I mean, the agony of defeat is way harder to yeah, take. People than hate the, loss the of joy. Yeah, exactly. But in my career and most people, this is true. You end up, if you play long enough, you end up on both sides of the coin. Yeah. You know, you get your fair share of, of balls that bounce your way, your team's way, and your fair share of ones that don't and just drive you crazy. Cool. Did you tr- did you use human ketone for a workout? I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I know that Zill put a I note did. down. I, yeah, hmm. I did. I, I used it twice, and I had two incredible workouts, but I, I actually went to Pittsburgh to go train with Aaron Donald and one of my old strength coaches, who's the head strength coach at university of Pitt. So there was a lot of factors involved, Yeah, you know, so it's hard to, I can't, I don't want to give all the credit to it, <laughs> but I know I took it. I was excited for the workouts I was doing and I had two awesome workouts. And so I'm going to try it again, but I'm two for two right now. Cool. Yeah, we got to send you some more. I mean, it's been interesting. Some of the biggest clients for the Keto Nestor have been Special Operations Command and a lot of the Grand Tour European cycling teams. A couple NFL teams actually were looking at it at the end of regular season last year. So I don't want to well, name NFL, teams right now. The, but Yeah, you don't want to yeah. name, but the, yeah. the NFL is competitive. So we ever find out something <laughs> works uh, and it's legal to take. Yeah. We're all going to get on it as soon as possible. Cool. So, no, good to hear that um, positive feedback there. So what's next for you? I know you're talking in the beginning of the conversation, looking at a couple options for year 10. What are you looking forward to for the rest of the year, rest of the season? Any big plans with Make the World Better? What's on your yeah, plate? Yeah. So I just had a son a week ago. So Congratulations. Um, that's been the coolest, thank you, the coolest, most amazing thing that's ever happened in my life. So 
I'm, uh, I'm just training for next year, this coming season in Philadelphia and then spending a lot of time with my family, which has been really nice. And then make the world better. We actually break ground in two weeks at Waterloo Playground in North Philadelphia, which I'm excited about. And then wherever I play next year, I have a couple options, ideas right now, but I'm going to wait until the end of July before camp to make my decision. And then, you know, at this point, I'm going to take it one year at a time. I'd like to play. I've told myself 12 years is probably enough, but, you know, we'll, we'll take it one year at a time at this point. But next year will be 10 and Hopefully, I don't want to keep doing it after 12. <laughs> so, I mean, I think I was saying in the beginning of the conversation, you had the most audience questions we've ever had so far. And, and there's a bunch that we just cut out for sake of time. So, clearly, a lot of fan interest. Appreciate what you do. Excited to watch you on the field again in, in the upcoming season and continue to do the good work you do with the community. So, we appreciate all of that. Thank you. And thanks for having me. Great conversation. Hey. Good luck to you guys. Cheers, Connor. Cheers. I know a lot of you guys have been writing in at podcast.human.com for different questions or topics or subjects that you'd like myself and our research lead, Dr. Brianna Subs, to cover. So let's actually make a Q&A special episode to answer any and all of your questions relating to our own personal performance protocols, our research and backgrounds as biohackers and scientists and business people to, you know, what's going on at Human? You know, what products are we working on? What R&D are we working on? What customers? What are the feedback from the keto nester? Happy to address any and all questions. So shoot us an email at podcast@human.com, And we'll, once we have a big bank of questions, we'll do a special episode. As always, please subscribe for future episodes of the Human Enhancement Podcast. Give us a five-star review on iTunes and send a screenshot to podcast@human.com. And we'll send you a free Sprint Mini, our acute focus nootropic. Thanks so much and see you next time.